Jesus, the Son of God. And really, this message is part two of the message we heard last week in the first part of chapter five, because they go together perfectly. The setting of the first 15 verses of John 5 is important to make verses 16 to 47 make sense. So uh, as we start, I just want to kind of remind you of where we are. We're in Jerusalem. Jesus has been at the, the pool through the sheep gate on the north side of the temple. There was a man there in the midst of all this healing that he sought out and he healed. This man got up, walked away carrying his bed. That led to a confrontation with the religious leaders who, who came to him and said, Why are you walking carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Don't you know the law? And this man, of course, said, Well, someone else healed me. Right? He pushes the blame away. It's someone else's fault. He, he told me to. Well, who was this man? I don't know. So he goes his way. Later in the temple, Jesus seeks out this man. He says, go and sin no more. There's more at stake here. Your sin condemns you. In essence, Jesus is calling him to believe. I am the one who healed you. But this man runs back to the religious leaders and he says, hey, I found him. It's Jesus. So you can put all your attention towards him and you can ignore me. And so they go to Jesus. And that's where we come in verses 16 to 18 where Jesus says, he answers them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. We talked last week about how in that statement what Jesus is saying is the same authority that God has to work on the Sabbath is the same authority that I have to work on the Sabbath. In essence, Jesus is saying, as they rightly catch on to, I am equal to God. Therefore, verse 18 tells us, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. This furiates them. In fact, we talked about last week how the first 15 verses of John chapter 5 is kind of a turning point in the book of John. Where those who oppose Jesus have moved from interest. They've moved from being kind of interested in him, but not, not really on board, to outright opposing him. In fact, they're now seeking to kill him. And they understand exactly what Jesus has said here because it says, therefore the Jews sought to kill him all the more because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. <coughs> Jesus, however, does not turn and run. Jesus, standing before this accusation, stands up and answers them. And he answers them with with a very clear statement. What has been implied, what has been really stated, what has been testified to in the first four and a half chapters of John is here in this chapter clearly explained and stated beyond a shadow of a doubt. These religious leaders did not leave John chapter 5 wondering, what is Jesus really trying to say? It's clear. It's evident. There's no more excuses. Did you come to the end of John chapter 5? As we work our way through this passage, we will see Jesus' authority, Jesus' purpose, and then Jesus' rebuke. First thing we see in verses 19 to 23 
It's not working. Is Jesus' authority. Notice verse 19 that Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, this is the truth. He wants them to be clear that what I'm saying right now, this is not hyperbole. I'm not speaking in some clouded head. This is clear. This is the truth. He doesn't want them to walk away saying, well, he was just speaking in analogies. No, this is the truth. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Now at first, that might strike you a little bit like an odd statement. At first, that might sound kind of like Jesus is somehow <coughs> limited. Almost like he's a, a puppet or a slave. He has no authority of his own. He can only do what God tells him to do. He can only obey. He has no say in the matter. But the verse goes on, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. What is being communicated here in verse 19 is not that Jesus is somehow a puppet of the Father. Rather, what, is being, what Jesus is saying here is that my will and my action is always in perfect alignment with the Father's will and the Father's action. We are never at odds with one another. I work on the Sabbath because the Father works on the Sabbath. If the Father did not work on the Sabbath, I would not work on the Sabbath. God the Son and God the Father can never be at odds with one another. What He does, I do because we are one. We are the same. We are equal. And yet notice that this relationship is also not reciprocal because nowhere in Scripture does it say that the Father does exactly what the Son does. There's a unique aspect to the father-son relationship in the Trinity. Now, you're going to have to pay attention and follow along with me this morning because a lot of what we're dealing with is Jesus as the son, his relationship with the father. And so it's going to be a lot of, of inter-Trinitarian relationship. And it can be heavy. And it can be deep. And the truth is, we're never going to fully wrap our minds around it. And, and when you're talking about the Trinity, you get into trouble when you start trying to, to add things to it or to make it make sense where Scripture doesn't speak. And so we're going to look at what the Bible says Amen. and what the Bible says alone. Amen. And in this section right here, it's talking about a unique aspect of the father-son relationship. The Son is the Father's agent. We see that in creation. He's the agent of the Father in creation. We see that in John 1, in Colossians 1. He's the agent of the Father in salvation. We see that all throughout John. John 3. Philippians 2. He does... What the Father does. And yet, for whatever He does, the Son does in like manner. Really, in this passage, what we have is, is 
a clear statement that highlights both Jesus' deity and his humanity. The Son has submitted himself to the Father, and yet at the same time, he does what the Father does. He is equal to him. Notice it says, whatever he does, whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner, in the exact same way. Only God can do what God can do. And so if the Son can do what the Father can do, then the Son is the Father. They're equal. One essence, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet there's unique roles in this Trinitarian relationship. And that's what we are seeing here, one of these unique roles, Father and Son. It goes on in verse 20. In fact, you'll notice verse 20, verse 21, and verse 22 all start with the word for. Jesus is making an argument here. He's making a point. So he makes a statement. And then why? Well, for this reason. Why? For this reason. Why? For this reason. To what end? Verse 23, that. So, back to verse 19. You have this relationship between the Father and the Son. Why? For the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. Perfectly. There's nothing lacking in this love, in this relationship. And the Father shows him all things that he himself does. The Father loves the Son by showing the Son all that he does. In this relationship, what we're seeing is the Father loves the Son and the Son knows the Father. In fact, he will show him greater works than these. This miracle that you've just seen, there will be greater things. In fact, verse 21 goes on to explain that, that what he's talking about here is resurrection. The power over life and death you will see. But the Father will show the Son greater works than these to what end? That you may marvel. That you may marvel, not that you may be entertained, but that you may be drawn to repentance. That you may see who Jesus is and turn to him for salvation. The Father shows his love for the Son by continually disclosing his works to him. And the Son shows the Father to man by continually disclosing the Father to man. You see, God loves the world by loving the Son. God's love for the world does not come into conflict with God's love for the Son. God's love for the Son is how He loves the world. It's His expression of His love. For God so loved the world that what? He sent His Son. Verse 21, for, again, that you may marvel these greater things that he's going to show. Why? For, as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, it is God who has power over life and death. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. 
Again, a statement of Christ's divinity. As Father has power over life and death, so the Son has power over life and death. In fact, John 1, 4, what we saw at the very beginning of this book, in Him, in Christ, in the Word, was life, and that life was what? The light of men. And notice that as the Father gives life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. As God is sovereign over creation, so Christ is sovereign over salvation. Son gives life. He gives eternal life. And He gives it to whom He will. The atonement is broad in scope. All can be saved and yet narrow in application. It's only those who believe that are saved. We saw in John 3.16, whosoever will can be saved. And yet the Son gives life to whom he will. Why? Verse 22 goes on, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. As Christ has power to give life, so he has the power to judge. See that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, where God, Father, has put all things in subjection to the Son. To what end? That eventually God may be all in all. As the Son gives the, the, the kingdom, the completed kingdom, back to the Father. given all things to the Son. That, to this end, verse 23, all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. There's no mistaking what is being said here. The Son is equal to the Father in relationship, in action, in will, and in glory. In fact, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. To not accept Christ is to deny God himself. To call him a liar. So in these verses we see that Jesus' authority to do the things that he does Jesus' authority to heal on the Sabbath comes from Jesus' identity. It's who He is. He's the Son of God. And the Son is equal to the Father in will, activity, and glory. So as you come to the end of these verses, we see Jesus' authority. Next, we see Jesus' purpose. Again, verse 23. For most assuredly, truly, truly, I'm still not speaking in analogy. This is true. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He who hears, he who accepts, he who believes. He who turns from his sin, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me his everlasting life. 
Notice that there's no mention of law here in verse 24. That's what these religious leaders are all upset about. He's, he has broken the law. We have to defend the law. And the law has a purpose. The law reveals our sin. The law points us to Christ, but it points us to Christ. The law can't save us himself. And Christ is the one who, when you hear him, you hear his word, you believe. Believe he who sent me has everlasting life. The Son mediates the Father. He's the Father's agent of salvation. And so to believe Jesus is to believe God the Father. And to not believe Jesus is to not believe the Father. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's why Jesus is here. That's why Jesus has come to bring life, to bring salvation to all who will hear, to all who will turn from their sin and turn to him and believe. Most assuredly, again, truly, truly, this is the truth. Pay attention. I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. The statement is both a present reality and a future reality. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming. It's future, and yet it now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Those who heard, right? 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes. Verse 25, those who hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. Those who have believed. As the physically dead in Christ will one day experience resurrection life in Christ, So those who believe in Christ are raised in a preliminary spiritual life. That's what we picture in baptism. The old man is dead, the new man is alive. I'm a new man in Christ. I am presently experiencing what I will further experience later. I will be raised in Christ, incorruptible. And yet now I am saved. Now I am secure. Now I am spiritually alive. I have passed from death to life spiritually. And likewise, I will pass from death to life physically in Christ. It is coming, and yet it now is. If you will hear the voice of the Son of God, you will live. For as the Father has life in himself... He's not dependent on anyone else for life. He is self-existent. So he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now that is a statement that we need to explain a little bit.
What is not being said here is that the Father has given the Son something that the Son at one time did not have. If the beginning of verse 26, for the Father has life in himself, means that the Father is not dependent on anyone else for life, that the Father is self-existent, well, we know, too, that the Son is self-existent. This is not a statement of importance. It's not a statement that the Father is more important than the Son but of relation, of submission. It's the same thing that we saw earlier. In verse 19, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he, does, what, what he sees the father do, whatever he does, the son also does. It's talking about the unique relationship as father and son in the Trinity. Theologically, it's called the eternal generation or the eternal sonship. Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God. At no point did Jesus not have life in himself. At no point was Jesus dependent on the Father for life. He's always been God. He's always been the Son. He's always had life in himself. This is talking about the unique relationship between father and son. The son is submitted to the father. One in essence, and yet three distinct persons. In fact, that's what it has to mean, because it says he has granted the Son to have life in himself. If having life in yourself means that you are self-existent, that you're not dependent on anyone else, then no one can give that to you. It doesn't even make sense that God the Father could give that to him if that's what it means. relationship. 1 Corinthians 11.3 actually ties the relationship in the Trinity to the relationship in marriage and says as the husband is head of the wife so the head of Christ is God. That's what we see here in this relationship. In fact, verse 27 goes on, God the Father has given him, Christ, authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. Now that raises another question. Because in John 3, 16 and 17, it says that God came to bring life, not to judge. So then how has God given him the authority to judge? Well, John 3, 17 is not... <coughs> talking about that, John 3.17 is talking about Christ's purpose. His purpose was not to judge. His purpose was to bring life. And yet, in bringing life, there's going to be judgment. Yeah. I have brought life. Will you believe? But if you don't believe, there is judgment. His purpose is to bring life. His purpose was not to come and to judge. 
But as a just judge, there must be judgment. He has given authority to him to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. It ties back to Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, where that name, the Son of Man, is used, and the Son of Man is given a kingdom. It has eschatological overtones. He's the one who reigns, he's the one who has authority. He's been given that authority by God the Father. Do not marvel at this, verse 28 goes on, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Again, here, the point is not how many resurrections there are. The point is that you will rise and you will stand before this king and you will stand and either be justified or be condemned. Everyone will stand before God and the focus is not on when and where, but it's on the reality of the resurrection. You will stand before a holy, just, righteous judge one day. <coughs> And he will judge you. Have you done good? And John, that carries the idea of believed. Have you believed? Did you uh, believe, as verse 24 says? He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me his everlasting life. Or did you do evil? Did you not believe? You will either be raised to life or to condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's those who are in Christ who are raised to life and not to condemnation. Those who have believed in Christ, who have placed their faith in Him alone. But you will one day stand before a holy judge. And you will one day be raised to either life or to condemnation. Verse 30 goes on, I can do nothing, I can of myself do nothing, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. It is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We see that played out in the life of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, 42. As Jesus prays, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I'm not here for my will, I'm not here for myself. Your will be done. And he submits then to the Father. I'm not here for myself, I'm on a mission. I've come to bring life, I've come to bring salvation. And yet I will judge those who don't believe. Because the Father has given me all authority. My judgment is just. It is righteous. It is good. 
come to verse 31, to the end of the chapter then, we see Jesus' rebuke. He rebukes these religious leaders. In this section, he starts with these witnesses. There's all these witnesses to who Jesus is, to his ministry, to his identity as the Son of God. There's the Father, verse 32, and then verses 37 to 38, the Father stands as a witness of the Son. John the Baptist, verses 33 to 35, stands as a witness, a clear witness. It's made explicit, a clear witness. Jesus' own works, the miracle he's just done at this pool, testifies to his identity. In fact, even the Old Testament scripture testifies. There's four witnesses that Jesus brings forth. The Father, John the Baptist, my works, the Old Testament scriptures. You search the scriptures, verse 39, for in them you think that you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, and you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You are not willing. Notice there, it's not that you don't see it, it's that you're not willing. <laughs> The problem is not that the Old Testament is too hard to understand. The problem is not that, that you somehow missed all these examples that you've seen, all these things that have testified of me. The problem is that you are not willing. You don't have salvation because I'm not being clear enough. You don't have salvation because you are not willing to believe. You're not willing to see. The rejection of Jesus was a personal choice. They had no one to blame except themselves. Verse 41, I don't receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. What a stinging rebuke. Jesus is standing there and he says, you don't have the love of God in you. These religious leaders who keep the letter of the law, in fact, they've added 39 clarifications to it in terms of the Sabbath and yet they don't even have the love of God in them remember the context here a healed man who's been rebuked for walking home holding his bed <coughs> they've missed the whole point Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They show no justice. They show no kindness. They don't display the love of God. They couldn't see the love of God if it wasn't directly in front of their face. In fact, it is in front of their faces. Jesus Christ is standing there, and they still don't see it. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? You're more concerned about being accepted by each other than being accepted by God. 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, and whom you trust. I don't have to accuse you. These scriptures to which you cling, this law, it accuses you. You can't even keep the law that you cling to so tightly. Don't you see that the whole law is supposed to show you that you can't keep it? It's supposed to show you that you're a sinner. It's supposed to drive you to me. And yet you cling to it. You don't even really understand it. For if you really believed Moses, you would believe me. Imagine telling someone who is an expert in a field as these religious leaders were experts on the law and yet they've missed the whole point. He wrote about me. If you really understood him, if you really believed him, you would believe me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' authority and Jesus' purpose are clearly testified of. They're testified by the Father, by John the Baptist, by Jesus' works, even by the Old Testament to which they cling so clearly, and yet they have missed it. You come to the end of chapter 5, there is no confusion at this point. Maybe up till this point you could have made an excuse. Well, I don't know that I believe the Samaritan woman. I don't know that I believe what Jesus said to, to Nicodemus. It wasn't that clear. I don't know if I believe what Jesus did at the wedding. There's not that many people that saw it. I don't know if Jesus believed... I don't, I don't know if I believe what the, the disciples testify to in the first two chapters of John. They, they have their own agenda here. If you come to the end of chapter 5, you have to come to one of two conclusions. Either Jesus is a lunatic or he's the Son of God. There's no other options. Because it could not be any more clear here in John chapter 5 what Jesus is saying. I am the Son of God. I am equal to the Father. I have come to bring life and I will judge. And you will one day stand before me and I will judge you. And you will be raised to either life or to condemnation. There's no third option. Either Jesus is who he says he is. And you are a sinner in desperate need of salvation. And you need to turn to Christ and to him alone. Or Jesus is crazy. And none of this matters. Those are the only two options. I would submit to you that Jesus is not crazy. That Jesus is the son of God. And scripture could not be any more clear. So the question is, will you believe? Have you believed? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? The Bible makes it clear. We have all sinned. And it's that sin that separates us from God. It's that sin that condemns us. 
before a righteous, holy, just judge. And your only hope of salvation is not your good works, because your good works will never outweigh your sinfulness. It cannot. The only way of salvation is to believe Jesus Christ alone. Have you believed? Has there been a point in time when you have fallen on your knees before the Lord, when you have turned from your sin and you have cried out to God for mercy and for salvation and faith alone and Christ alone? If not, let that moment be this morning. In a moment as we sing, come to the front, and I would love nothing more than to take a Bible, take you aside, and show you how you can be saved. Or find someone near you who can take a Bible, sit down with you, pray with you, and show you, from the Word of God, how you can be saved from your sins. Point of application for those of us who are in Christ, who have believed. First, as you read John chapter 5, take a second to sit and to marvel. Marvel at your great God. Marvel at the Trinity. One essence, three distinct per persons. Marvel at a God who loves His Son and loves you by loving His Son. Marvel at the Son who came, who submitted to the will of the Father, who took on human, came in likeness as a man, and died for your sins. Marvel at the truth, John 5. And yet at the same time, search your hearts. You're no better than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I am no better than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We have the same weaknesses. What blind spots do we have? The problem was not that they could not see. The problem was that they chose not to see. Mm -hmm. Where are we choosing not to see? What are we allowing to, to cloud our vision? What parts of our, our society, our culture, get between us and what the Word of God clearly says? Or maybe there's places where we do clearly see the truth and yet we choose to ignore it because it's easier. Other places where we have sacrificed truth for acceptance, for ease, for comfort. I call you this morning to search your heart. Where are your blind spots? What are you missing? What am I missing? What are we missing? One day we will stand before a holy, righteous, just judge. And we cannot bring the excuse, I didn't know. Because it's clear. If you don't know, it's because you're choosing not to know. Search your hearts.
Turn to Christ. Whatever idols you have, lay down before him. Turn to Christ. Recommit this morning. In the week ahead, I'll be committed. In the week ahead, I will search my Bible. I will read the scriptures. I will love others. I will share the gospel. I will make disciples. It could not be any more clear.